some bad news coming on right now he's all over in the news first off you might be asking yourself what jake what are you doing back i think you're taking a break for the weekend to go have a baby and stuff well yeah 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 we i started that we had a false alarm this morning went down all the way down to the hospital hour and a half drive she's having contractions but they're not close enough so they sent us back they said come back at midnight uh so now i'm just wasting time wasted all the morning that took like five six hours Missy's in pain. She's over there. I'm staying the hell away from her. Let her rest. I'm sure it's going to be a long night. So I figured I'd just come to my little cavern of solitude and talk for a little bit. You guys hear about the ghost of Kiev? This like top, top gun fighter. The legend is, is that he's already shot down six Russian planes. We'll get to that in a little bit. Who doesn't have what we need is Biden, and his poll numbers are horrendous. And now this isn't from Fox News. This is from NPR, okay? And what they're saying is that a majority says Biden's first year was a failure. At least that's what a new poll finds. All right, let me get rid of this music. Hold on, go back there. Da, 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 da. Nice little mashup. A little Bismarcky Lauren Hill. Was singing here let's see uh maria massa singing with scary pockets anyways let me fade this out nice little jam there though okay so anyways yeah back to this poll and this is coming from npr and it says rising inflation a continuing pandemic a foreign policy misstep in afghanistan and democratic infighting all marred president biden's first year and now a majority of respondents to the new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll say his first year was a failure. In all, 56% said Biden's first year in office was a failure versus just 39% who said it was a success. What's more, 54% said he's not fulfilling his campaign promises and 52% said he's done more to divide the country than unite it. Despite uniting the country being a pillar of Biden's 2020 presidential run. So he's getting some bad, bad juju there, right? The president is clinging to just a 39% overall approval rating. 39%. That is ridiculously low. A 36% approval for his handling of the economy. A 47% for handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And just 30% of respondents said they think the U.S. is headed in the right direction. Jeez. Jeez. And he's getting ready to do his first formal State of the Union address. They've already got the 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 fences, the barbed wire, the armed guards in front of the White House to protect his ass during the State of the Union address. I am curious to see how he's gonna do. Well, I mean, we know he's just gonna be reading off a teleprompter. That's that that's kind of obvious. Um, so hopefully he won't divert from the script and he'll stay on the teleprompter and uh Hopefully he has some really good speech writers. 
And so Lee Meringoff, the director of the Marist Institute for Public Opinion, which conducted the poll, said these are sort of rock bottom numbers. It's about as low as you're going to see Biden. The main top concern that people have is inflation rises. And that far outpaces other issues, including the pandemic, which just 11% said they think should be his top priority. Voting laws, 11% thought that that should be his top priority. Foreign policy, 10%, and violent crime, 10%. Uh, but inflation is the, the, the top concern. 38% said that inflation should be his top concern. So I saw some other articles. So that's just the one poll. Let's see. And then I saw another poll. Let me find it real fast because, um, hold on. Let me get it. Let me get it. Okay. And here's another poll. Since we're talking polls, since we're doing the poll dance right now, uh, another poll that came from, uh, let's see. It was from uh, The Hill. Uh, anyways, it says 62, 62% of voters say Putin, Putin wouldn't, have had, wouldn't have invaded Ukraine if Trump was uh, still president. Uh, this comes from TheHill.com. Let me see what they're saying here. A majority of American voters say that Russian President Vladimir Putin would not have invaded Ukraine had former President Trump still been in office, according to a new survey released on Friday. A new Harvard Center for American Political Studies Harris Poll Survey released Friday found that 62% of those polled believe Putin would not be moving against Ukraine if Trump had been president. When looking strictly at the answers of Democrats and Republicans, 85% of Republicans and 38% of Democrats answered this way. However, 38% of all Americans polled believe that Putin would have invaded Ukraine even if Trump had been president. So 38 to 62. Uh, it says here that Trump's critics contend that the former president's relationship with Putin was extremely cozy. For example, Trump publicly called for Russia to be admitted to the G7 and has repeatedly criticized Ukraine. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has staunchly defended the independence of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. you know what else I saw? Hold on. Let me see if I can find this, too. While, while, while we're going down this wormhole, this wormhole, uh, let me see. So what I was looking for was uh, George Soros' Twittergram, his twit, the twatter, on the twatter. Uh, you know, whenever I find that maybe I'm aligning with George Soros, I start to wonder, well, wait a minute, wait, a minute, okay, wait, I'm missing something. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, right? George Soros. I, have you looked at his tweets lately? Is here he goes. Here's the first one. I have witnessed Ukraine transform from a collapsing part of the Soviet Union to a liberal democracy and open society. It has faced countless acts of Russian aggression, but has persisted. All right, his next one down. Brave Ukrainians are now on the front line and risking their lives in an onslaught that reminds me of the siege of Budapest in 1944 and the siege of Sarajevo in 1993. His third tweet, George Soros. It is important that both the transatlantic alliance, the United States, Canada, the European Union, and the United Kingdom, but also other nations do whatever it is in their power to support Ukraine in this time of existential threat. His fourth post. He's going, he's going, he's going ballistic, talking about Ukraine. Putin's actions are a direct attack on the sovereignty of all states that were once in the Soviet Union and beyond. Russia is in clear violation of the United Nations Charter 
and should be held accountable. And another one more tweet. George Soros, allowing Putin to secede in his quest will send a message across the world that nations can simply be created or dissolved by brute force. We must stand with Ukraine as they stand for us. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pro-Ukraine, but when I see that George Soros is pro-Ukraine too, uh, I start questioning, what am I missing? Is that, is that messed up? Is that messed up to think that George Soros, the granddaddy of the, of the, um, uh, well, you know, I don't want to say anything that has some, uh, secret agents showing up here that work for the deep state, Mr. Mr. Deep state, George Soros. Uh, but he's talking a lot about the Ukraine, which makes me wonder what's going on. And then Hillary Clinton, of course, Hillary Clinton, she starts chiming in and starts saying that we need to do acts of cyber war against, uh, Russia. I mean, these are acts of war that she's calling for. What can we do as a country to encourage and support those people? David, that's a great question. And uh, even though I did not encourage the demonstrations back in 2011, uh, I did point out on behalf of our country that they were in response to uh, what was an obvious uh, effort by Putin to stay in power and to literally rig his elections. Now we are looking at Russians once again in the streets. They don't want a war with Ukraine. There's a lot of family and other connections between Russians and Ukrainians. I think we can have both what I would argue for uh, government support, but also non-governmental support. There were reports overnight that uh, Anonymous, uh, a group of hackers, took down Russian uh, TV. Uh, I think that, you know, people who love freedom, people who understand that, you know, our way of life depends upon uh, supporting uh, those who believe in freedom as well, could be engaged in uh, cyber uh, support for uh, those in the streets in Russia. We did some of that during uh, the Arab Spring when I was Secretary of State. I think we could be also attacking a lot of the uh, government institutions and, uh, again, the oligarchs and their, uh, you know, their way of life through cyber attacks. And it will be difficult to get actual physical support, but I think we should be looking at that. I mean, the old days of, you know, radio-free Europe and getting and beaming in uh, accurate information into the homes of Russians. We should be doing everything we can now online to replicate that. It will be very difficult for Putin to plug all the holes in that dike. Information going into uh, Russia about what Putin is actually doing with this unprovoked attack on Ukraine can keep people, you know, energized. And I think that's something that we should be doing, as I say, both through our government, but also individuals who have the capacity to do that. Our tech companies should not be aiding Russia in this attack in any way. They should be aiding those who are standing for freedom, which, after all, is something that, uh, you know, they're supposed to be on the side of. You know, the thing I'm noticing here is that it's uh, it feels weird to hear an actual comprehensive chain of thought from somebody in politics. Um, I hate to say it, but I agree with a lot with what Hillary's saying there. Um, but at the same time, is Putin going to consider these attacks an act of war and then act re, you know, react outrageously, uh, to these unsanctioned attacks? You know, it's one thing if it's a, you know, it's one thing if it's a diplomatic sanctioned act, uh, but there's just these rogue things, especially when it's being called from somebody like Hillary Clinton. You could definitely look at it and uh, say that, yeah, hey, 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 this isn't a, a diplomatically sanctioned thing. And he could lose his nuts 
Is he going to do fire a nuke? I don't know. Uh, but Hillary, I, man, you know, it makes me wonder. Okay, Hillary, yeah, she's not a, who's who's more corrupt, Hillary or Biden? Then the thing is, is I believe Hillary's more corrupt, but at the same time, would I rather have her in the chair steering us through this conflict with Russia than Biden? Oh, man, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. Um, <laughs> I would have more faith in her being able to be on the spot, having a free flowing conversation that wasn't scripted by some puppet master in the back of the auditorium. Uh, so I, I, I believe that she's more intelligent than Biden. Um, but you know, intelligence mixed with evil or mixed with just utterly corrupt. Uh, that's a dangerous combination. Um, during this conflict though, with, uh, with Russia, I think I'd rather have Hillary be in the mouthpiece, but for the rest of everything else, I, I mean, it's like a lose, lose situation. It's like asking which way do you want to die? Like, which way do you want to die? Do you want to get gnawed to death by a pack of wild dogs or get stung to death by bees? You know, which one is really better? You know? Ooh, what does that sound? Oh yeah. I feel it. cheesiest guitar tone I've ever heard. So let's get on to this ghost of Kiev. So an unconfirmed Ukrainian MiG-29 pilot is credited with six kills. Twitter and social media have been hailing the exploits of an unknown, unknown Ukrainian fulcrum pilot who has allegedly shot down six Russian planes. The Ghost of Kiev. The, the evocation name is trending on Twitter and other social media sites and refers to a Ukrainian MiG-29 pilot who shot down the six Russian jets. Accompanying many of the Ghost of Kiev posts is footage of what appears to be a MiG-29 known under NATO's naming scheme as a fulcrum. Though most posts have exactly the same short clip, the plane flying over concrete tower blocks of housing with gray skies behind. Uh, so this is a guy that has come out to be kind of a hero for the Ukrainian people. According to one much-shared post, the Ghost of Kiev has downed two Su-35s, one Su-27, one MiG-29, and two Su-25s. Damn. Under general recognized air warfare naming conventions, any pilot who manages five kills, destroying or downing an enemy plane is recognized as an ace. With six kills in one day, the Ghost of Kiev would therefore be an ace after just one day of combat. But is the Ghost of Kiev real? So far, there's been no confirmation that the Ghost of Kiev truly exists, although former president of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, tweeted a photo of what he said was the pilot on Friday. What we do know is that the Ukrainian defense forces have said seven Russian aircraft have been downed during Thursday's conflict. Whether six of these were won, won by pilot of Kiev seems unlikely given that the fighting has taken place over a number of battle zones across the country. What cannot be denied though is that the idea of the ghost of Kiev has gripped social media users, particularly staunch supporters of Ukraine. In the replies to the post about the alleged ace pilot's exploits, many users expressed their admiration and hope that the ghost will carry on taking the fight of the superior Russian Air Force. Maybe the ghost of Kiev is just a fantasy, but for the people of the Ukraine, 
he or she is a hero they want to believe in. Uh, I just hope this comes up in uh, in uh, uh, Sean Penn's documentary that he's over there filming. You know, get a little Top Gun aspect going to this whole documentary of the invasion of the Ukraine. Ghost of Kiev. Every war needs a hero, right? And this war is definitely going to have more than its share of one hero. Other than the Ghost of Kiev, another notable hero fighting in the Ukrainian war is a you is a a heroic Ukrainian soldier who blew himself up on a bridge to prevent Russian advance. When the battalion decided that the only way to block the armored column was by blowing up the bridge, Vladimich volunteered to place mines on the span, uh, according to the general staff of the armed forces. And when he realized he had no time to get to safety, the brave soldier made the ultimate sacrifice on the bridge, which connected Russian-occupied Crimea and mainland Ukraine. Uh, so this soldier took it upon himself to blow this bridge. Uh, the Russian tanks were advancing. They were running out of time. He planted the mines and blew himself up uh, to protect his country. I mean, these are some hardcore dudes over there, man. Hardcore guys. According to his brothers-in-arms, Vitaly got in touch. That's his name, Vitaly. He got in touch with them and said he was going to blow up the bridge immediately after an explosion rang out, the military said. Our brother was killed. His heroic act significantly slowed down the push of the enemy, allowing the unit to relocate and organize the defense. Russian invaders know, under your feet the earth will burn. We will fight as long as we live. As long as we are alive, we will fight. Military commanders said they plan to give Volodymyrovich a, 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 an award for his heroic act. Anyways, lots of these stories of heroes. Uh, you know, as a result of this guy's valor, the Russian forces were forced to take a longer route into the region. And, uh, yeah, it's just amazing what's going on over there. These guys have balls. Their president has balls. You know, the U.S. hit up the president or their, whatever the, 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 the term is that they use for the leader of the Ukraine. And they were offering him a way out, you know, to, uh, you know, get him, extract him. And he said, I don't need a ride. I need more ammunition. You know, the guy's got some balls on him. I wish we had something like that over here, but I don't think we're going to get that anytime soon. All aboard the crazy train. Issaquah Schools, which is a suburb of Seattle. Well, their school board has been doing something unique. Uh, we saw, we read some stories the other day about universities doing this. Uh, remember where, where white people need to shut up. Uh, they need to take silence uh, to allow minorities to speak. Well, the Issaquah School District, the school board, has been holding different school board meetings. One for the indigenous minorities so they can speak their mind, and then one for the white people. Well, somebody had a problem with it and spoke out against it, saying that it was wrong. And this is the actual school board's response to that. Um, you know, they're just trying to be ultra-woke. Ultra-woke, that's, uh, that's the new move. That's what you have to do. You have to be ultra-woke. And this is their woke response. Do you want to say a few words? Um, I'm sorry for anybody who feels that that was an indication of segregation. Um, it was really an intent from the board to be able to hear from 
uh, are historically marginalized families. We wanted to be able to have an environment where they could share freely and honestly and feel vulnerable. And so we have heard from those families before, and we understand that sometimes the environment isn't comfortable. So having them surrounded by other people similar to them makes it easier. So our intent was to create a more welcoming an environment and to be more inclusive versus to exclude anyone. Um, we did change our language on the wording. We listened to some people that have given us feedback. All of the meetings are open to any families to attend. And we invite you to either attend one or more of the focus group meetings or fill out the survey. But our intent is to be expansive and inclusive. So. And to speak down to people that aren't white like you, bitch who's talking, and belittle them and act like they are inferior and you need to have your own special time with them. I don't know, man. If I was an indigenous dad or indigenous parent that was uh, involved in these indigenous meetings that were free of white people to stomp over me, I would kind of take that as an insult that I'm not, I am not capable of standing up and talking on my own. And so I need to have this uh, special time because I have special needs, because I'm disabled, because I'm indigenous or I'm a minority and I'm not white. I mean, that's what they're treating. They're, they're catering to them like it's a disability. I just don't think that that's the, that's the proper way to do things. And apparently somebody had some problems. They brought it up to them. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's think less of you that, that you're less able to speak out because you're a minority. So we're going to have our own little, uh, do you guys see the problem here? Isn't that a little degrading? A little, a little in, in, in insulting, insulting that they believe that, you know, I understand, I understand the angle that they say that their voice needs to be heard, but to segregate them away from the rest of society or the white society, to segregate your group of constituents so that the minority group can be, have a voice without being stomped on by the white people means that you think less of them, that you think that they're not capable of speaking out in that kind of a forum. I don't know, man. To me, it's reeks of segregation, but it, it definitely reeks of segregation and it definitely reeks of an opposition to all men are created equal. I mean, how can it not? How can it not? Now, in an unrelated story that's happening in another school district, this one is Rochester Community Schools. Uh, the, super, the superintendent of Rochester Community Schools monitored the social media of parents who criticized the district, and he and a deputy reported posts to at least two employers of said parents and one police department. The superintendent acknowledged in a deposition, so there's a lawsuit going on over there. One of those parents was fired shortly after the district contacted her employer about a posting that she had that was in opposition to the Rochester Community Schools. Superintendent Robert Shaner testified during a February 3rd deposition that he called one parent's employer, the Detroit Police Department, because he was scared by a social media post that called for protest outside private homes in March of 2021. It was not clear to whom those homes were belonged to. So what you have is you have a superintendent in a school going through social media posts of parents that are opposing the school district. One parent was obviously causing, uh, calling out for a protest and a protest in front of some of these school board members' homes. 
So this superintendent took it upon himself to report it to the police department, which is fine, I guess, if you're afraid for whatever reason. And he also doxed them by calling their employers, which in turn resulted in one parent being fired. Oh, uh, that's a little wild, don't you think? A little wild. So I guess Rochester Community Schools, since he called the Detroit Police Department, I guess it's uh, it's it's in, in or near Detroit. But that's just a crazy thing that I ran across. And then there's a third school story. And this one is over in, let me see, Deer Park. I'm not too sure where Deer Park is. Deer Park Middle School. Anyways, the principal, this was an email that he sent out. One, one update I like for our awards. He's talking about the awards in the school. One update I'd like for our awards is to remove gender to the maximum extent possible. Basically, boy award and girl award. Please just have two students and just call it the Ranger Pride Award for the title and then just list the student names. I know with some of our sports, it makes sense to have gender, but if we can limit these, these categorizations, we should. Y'all may still identify one boy and one girl, but we have a few students that may not fit into those categories. It is important that we are inclusive of them as well for our awards and celebrations. I hope that makes sense. Please let me know if you have any questions. Thank you, John Manning, Principal, Deer Park Middle School. So uh, I guess that's a step forward, removing gender from the awards. You can have female student of the year, male student of the year. Just going to call it student of the year to include everybody. And this is a middle school, so these are youngsters. Huh. Not exactly sure how I feel about that. Degenderifying the awards for students to accommodate students that don't identify as boy or girl. The world's uh, the world's gone mad. The world's just gone mad. Well, my final story before I wrap things up is going to be this massive settlement that's going on. And basically what's going on is there's four U.S. companies are going to play, are going to pay $26 billion to settle claims they fueled the opioid crisis. Yes, four of the largest U.S. corporations have agreed to pay roughly $26 billion to settle a tsunami of lawsuits linked to claims that their business practices help fuel the deadly opioid crisis. Johnson & Johnson, the consumer products and health giant that manufactured generic opioid medications, will contribute $5 billion to the settlement. The company announced in 2020 it would get out of the prescription opioid business in the U.S. altogether. Three massive drug wholesalers, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal Health, and McKeeson will pay a combined $21 billion. This settlement represents real accountability, said North Carolina State Attorney General Josh Stein, who helped to negotiate this deal. Stein noted that most of the funds are earmarked for healthcare and drug treatment programs designed to ease the opioid crisis. There will be people alive next year because of the programs and services we will be able to fund because of these settlement proceeds, according to Stein. None of the companies acknowledged any wrongdoing for their role manufacturing and distributing large quantities of pain medications at a time when opioid addiction and overdoses were surging. In a joint statement, the drug wholesalers said they had determined that enough 
governments had signed on to the deal to move forward with a comprehensive agreement to settle the vast majority of the opioid lawsuits. In all, 40, in all, 46 states and roughly 90% of eligible local governments have signed on to the deal, according to the company's assessment. In a separate statement, Johnson & Johnson said its contribution to the deal would directly support state and local, state and local efforts to make meaningful progress in addressing the opioid crisis. The deal settles thousands of lawsuits. This settlement resolves thousands of civil lawsuits filed against the companies beginning in 2014 by local and state governments, as well as Native American tribes nationwide. The settlement will provide thousands of communities across the United States with up to approximately $19.5 billion over 18 years, the drug distributor said in their statement. Amerisource Bergen will pay $6.1 billion. Cardinal Health will pay $6 billion, McKeeson $7.4 billion. Broad outlines of the deal were first unveiled in July 2021, but the company said they wouldn't accept the settlement unless enough governments agreed to sign on and drop their lawsuits. Initial payments will begin in April and will continue over the next two decades, 20 years. Uh, the money will arrive at a moment when the opioid epidemic has escalated dangerously. Many Americans with opioid use disorder have shifted opioid use disorder. That's what they're calling it now, huh? Okay, Americans with opioid use disorder have shifted from taking prescription pain pills to street fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that is far more powerful and lethal. Drug overdoses now kill more than 100,000 people in the U.S. every year, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Joe Rice with the firm Motley Rice is one of the lead attorneys suing the drug industry over its alleged role in the opioid crisis. He supports the settlement and said the funds will help devastated communities start rebuilding and deal with this epidemic. Ah, $26 billion shared amongst four companies. That's huge. Uh, the crazy thing is they're going to go to all state and local stuff. You know, there's going to be a lot of people with their fingers in that cookie drawer. Uh, yeah, there's going to be a lot of rich people that are, you know, the guys, the contractors building these drug rehab facilities, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, they're just going to fund, I mean, okay, $26 billion for maybe pumping up these opi opioids and overselling to, you know, whatever. It, well, but, the, you know, the thing is, the drug manufacturers, they weren't the ones prescribing it, were they? No, that's doctors. Uh, doctors are going to skate free on this. And then that money's going to go through all these local governments where they are corrupt, where people are going to get their hands on there. Basically, what's going on here is just a bunch of local politicians, state officials, etc., just got their pockets lined with $26 billion. So that's that in the news. Anyways, this is Jake with Radio Underland. I got to go take a nap before we have this baby tonight. And uh, you guys be safe, be good humans, and I'll get back to you soon. Have a good one. Later.